Our world has a lot of chaos and confusion in it, doesn't it? I mean, we look at presidential election coming up in November. We look at the Supreme Court seat that now will need to be filled at some point. We look at COVID-19 and all the challenges that continues to create. We look at the racial issues going on. We look at the wildfires and we look at hurricanes and we look at how Christians are just kind of caught in the middle of all this, pulled this way and that. And it can be hard to figure out how do we make sense of all this and how does God expect us to engage in the world that is so full of chaos and confusion. That's what we're looking at in the course of the sermon series called Allegiance, Living for the Kingdom of God. The main premise of the series is that the kingdom of God forms for us a framework to not only understand what's taking place in the world, but also to know how do we engage in the world in a healthy, God-honoring way. So we're talking in the series a lot about the kingdom of God. Let me give you a definition of the kingdom of God. Here's one definition that you could look at. The kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. Now, obviously, if God's a king, he, he rules. So it's God's rule, but he rules a domain, which is the sphere of influence, which is the idea of a place, and a people who submit to him are part of his kingdom. We'll be unpacking this more today and also in the weeks to come. So this is the idea of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, as we look through Scripture, serves as the overarching framework that makes sense of everything that happens in the Bible. I mean, you think about a good story in a book or in a movie. There is a storyline, a cohesive narrative that ties it all together. I mean, you don't just read a book or watch a movie that has a bunch of just isolated, freestanding incidents that don't relate to the other parts. No. There's a cohesive storyline that makes sense of all the smaller parts within the book or within the movie. And it's the same with the Bible. The Bible is not just a, a disconnected series of fascinating stories from down through history. I mean, it has interesting stories, but there's one overarching storyline from Genesis all the way through Revelation that helps make sense of all the smaller parts. And I believe the biggest, most comprehensive storyline in the Bible is that of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're looking at today. It's going to be a whirlwind tour of the kingdom of God being the master narrative, the overarching storyline of the Bible. But also, the kingdom of God is the overarching storyline, the master narrative of all of humanity down through history that makes sense of everything that's going on past, present, and future. So, you can, if you want to take notes, get out of a pencil, pen, get ready to write. Uh, we're going to be going through a whirlwind tour. We're looking at this as a story with six chapters of the master narrative. The first chapter of the master narrative starts with creation. The creation launched God's kingdom. Now, God was king before he created anything. He's been king from eternity past. But in the idea of a kingdom with people and entities to rule, that started with creation. And specifically focuses in on what's happening in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. So at the beginning, God's kingdom in terms of the place it was the entire universe, but focusing initially on the, on the Garden of Eden. And the people initially were Adam and Eve. Humanity has always played a special purpose and role in, in God's kingdom. Genesis chapter 1 says that we are created in God's image and given a task, he says, in verse 27 of Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply 
and to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And it goes on and on. on and we are to have dominion. We are to subdue the wildness of the earth and bring it into order under God's kingship. So the Garden of Eden is the prototype of God's kingdom. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And so we start out there in the first chapter. But God didn't intend for his kingdom rule to stop in the Garden of Eden. That was the, the starting point. And then it would expand beyond there with the idea of filling the world, subduing it, having dominion over it, stewardship, God delegating some of his authority to us to rule the world. So things started out really, really nice. But it didn't take long before there's trouble in paradise. There was rebellion against God as king. Now, technically speaking, rebellion started before the creation of humanity. In the angelic realm, there was rebellion. Satan led about a third of the angels in rebellion against God. But we see the Bible primarily is focusing on what's happening on earth among humans. Adam and Eve, they started, things were going so well for them at first. God's people in God's place under God's rule. But Satan came and he planted the seed of doubt. He tempted them to doubt God's goodness. And they began to think maybe God's holding out on us. And so they took a step. It was disobedience. It was a step of rebellion. From our angle, it looks kind of tame. All they did was eat a piece of fruit. But it was a piece of fruit God told them not to eat. It was, it was rebellion against God. It was rebellion against the king. It reminds me of the last two lines of a poem called Invictus. Those lines say, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That was essentially what they were doing. They were taking their, their direction in life, their fate into their own hands, saying, oh, we're going to do it our way, God, not your way. And that has been characteristic of humanity all down through the centuries, doing things our way, wanting to be the captain of our soul, the master of our fate. So the king's people rebelled against the king. But God was still sovereign. He was still in control, but he had given some freedom to his subjects. He didn't want us merely to be robots. He wanted us to freely choose to worship him, to freely choose to submit to him. But we abused that freedom and chose to turn away from him, starting with Adam and Eve on down to us through history. Now, that rebellion and that sin, it spread through the book of Genesis. We see in Genesis, we see murder, and we see adultery, we see incest, we see uh, just deception and manipulation and lying and betrayal. All the problems that we face in our society today, we can see at least the foreshadowing of them back there in Genesis. So the rebellion spread. It had all kinds of negative consequences. The king's subjects were rebelling against the king. But God, the king, was not passive. What we see in chapter 3 of this master narrative is that the king's redemptive mission began through Israel. Now, there were hints of this redemptive mission earlier, but it really began to focus in on Israel. We see hints in Genesis, but it came into focus in, in Exodus, where God led this people known as the Hebrews, also known as Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And out as they were going to meet with God, God said to them, Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you hear that idea of God's rule, if you do those things, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this points to God's calling for Israel. That Israel's calling was to be a holy kingdom of priests. It shows they were not to be an end unto themselves. They, were, they existed, according to God's call, for the world. They were to be God's blessing to the world. They were to, to really be an example to the world of what it looks like to live under God's rule. That's what it meant to be a kingdom of priests. They were to help expand the rule of God around the world. So we see early on that God's people and God's place were Israel for this chapter, which takes up the majority of the Old Testament. But if you know much about Israel's history, you know they did not do well under God's kingship. They rebelled over and over and over. In fact, in Judges 21, verse 25, it sums it up saying, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Captain of their own soul. Doing what's right in their own eyes. They were not submitting to God as king. And along the way, they were looking at the surrounding nations. And these surrounding nations all had human kings. Israel, at that point, only had a divine king. And they were like immature children who are not, not, not thankful for what they do have. Instead, they were jealous of what they don't have, what others have. And so they began to say, God, we want a human king. And in doing so, God said in response, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, they have rejected me from being king over them. So the people of Israel in the master narrative, they rejected God as their king. That is a constant theme down through human history. People rejecting God as their king. God, though, gave them a human king according to their desires. And so we see the focus of Israel came uh, on a human king overseeing a human earthly kingdom. It started with King Saul. Didn't start on a great note. Went to King David. And then went to King Solomon. David was kind of the gold standard for kings in Israel's history. But even he made a royal mess of things at times. And God made it clear throughout that Israel's kings are not to be a law unto themselves. No, Israel's kings are to be humble leaders of God's people, leading them to follow God. They were to be in submission to God. It was technically a theocracy in Israel, where God was the supreme ruler. And even the king of Israel was not an end unto himself. He was to follow God's kingship. So it was a theocracy. But things fell apart quickly. Eventually, the kingdom of Israel split into two. God sent prophets to call Israel back to himself. You, saw, you see the cycle of rebellion and repentance and then rebellion and repentance. It goes on and on. And one of the things it makes very clear is that a political kingdom was not going to bring in God's kingdom once and for all. Political kingdom, even a theocracy on this earth, was not going to be the solution. And all along, God knew this. All along, God's plan was to bring a king who was a divine king who would set up his kingdom in a way that nothing on this world could create. And we see hints of this through the prophets, that the prophets foreshadowed a greater king and a greater kingdom. And the classic text about this is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, but we see it in many, many other places. But let me read from Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. To us... A son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You know, we read this a lot at Christmas time. It was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. But it tells of a king who is coming, who is much greater than any, any earthly king. He will sit on David's throne, it says, metaphorically, carrying on that lineage and rule of David. But this king who's coming, his kingdom will be forevermore. And it's going to be characterized by justice and righteousness. So that's chapter 3 of the master narrative. But we turn to chapter 4 next, when Jesus, the true king, comes. And this is the focal point. This is kind of the hinge point of all of human history. The master narrative, it focuses on Jesus, the true king. Jesus' kingship is evident very early. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, this young woman who has just had a baby conceived in her by the Holy Spirit, the angel says to Mary, Luke 1, verse 31 through 33, Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the, the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It's the fulfillment of these prophecies and these hopes down through history. Jesus is going to be a king whose rule never ends. No, no human king can say that. But that is Jesus, the true and divine king. Now you fast forward in a few decades to when Jesus began his, his personal ministry. What were Jesus' first words when he began his public ministry? They centered on the kingdom of God. We see in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So one of the things we see here is that the gospel centers on the kingdom of God. They are, not in, they are not separable from each other. The gospel is about the kingdom of God, the, the coming of King Jesus, who will redeem us through his life, death, and resurrection, but redeem us into God's kingdom. So we see that Jesus says the time is fulfilled. It shows these hopes and these hints that were dropped all down through history, all through the Old Testament, are now fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the king who was to come, who will usher in God's kingdom in a new and powerful way. And Jesus, as he progresses through his ministry, shares more and more about this kingdom that he's ushering in. For instance, early in Jesus' ministry, he delivers a Sermon on the Mount, which I would call his kingdom manifesto. Why do I call it that? Because it's all about God's kingdom and the values of the kingdom and how the values of God's kingdom turn the values of the world upside down. I mean, Jesus' very first words recorded in the Sermon on the Mount are Matthew 5, verse 3. that say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is turning the values of this world upside down. I mean, this world values things that are, that are amazing and great, that are, that are rich and famous and, and powerful. And Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, those who are weak, those who are poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Turns the values of this world upside down. Then, in the next chapter, Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, the still part of the Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom manifesto, Jesus says, you should pray to your Father in heaven, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A little bit later, Jesus says that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, showing that our primary allegiance, our primary hope, should come from God and his kingdom. Now, moving along through Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus embodied the values and the power of the kingdom. Throughout his ministry, Jesus performed many miracles. You're probably familiar with a number of his miracles. Jesus' miracles were little snapshots, little glimpses of the power of God's kingdom come into people's lives as he healed them from diseases and sicknesses, as he cast out demons, as he raised people from the dead. There's little snapshots of the power of the kingdom and of the hope that we hold for the future when God's kingdom comes in final power of ultimate healing. In fact, in Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus said, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, that when Jesus performed a miracle, the kingdom of God was coming upon people in power. If you know much about Jesus, you know he also loved to teach in parables. And Jesus' parables, by and large, were, were little snapshots about truths of God's kingdom. And there's oftentimes this paradoxical kingdom where, for instance, the kingdom of God, he says, starts like a mustard seed, a little tiny, but then it grows to be immensely large. He said in another parable that, that the kingdom, it may not even be visible to you. You may not even notice that it's working, but it's still active. It's still growing. Now the kingdom, turned upside, the kingdom of God turns upside down the values of this world. The Israelite leaders, the Jewish leaders, they believed that the kingdom was going to be a political kingdom that would overthrow the Roman Empire and that they as Jewish leaders and they as Israel were going to be at the top of the heap. But we see in Luke 17, verse 20, it says that being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And this shows from Jesus' own mouth in terms of you can't actually observe the kingdom of God coming. It shows that it's not going to come through the typical human structures of society. That's not the primary way it's coming. It's coming through the ministry of Jesus. It will be evident as Jesus rules in people's lives and through them. Now again, the Jews expected a political or military Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire, but Jesus made it clear that's not the type of kingdom he is bringing in. He's not that type of king. Remember earlier in that master narrative, Israel was a focal point of God's work. And the Jewish leaders thought, oh, God's going to raise Israel to overthrow the Roman Empire. God's going to raise Israel to be the top dog. No. Jesus said, Matthew 21, verse 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You know, the Jewish leaders thought, hey, we're going to have it made when the Messiah comes. But Jesus says, no, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, they're entering the kingdom of God before you, Jewish leaders. You can see why the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Because he was turning all their values upside down, but such is the kingdom of God. Jesus says in this conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 3, that the way you enter the kingdom of God is not through prestige, it's not through your religious activities. Instead, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God requires humility and faith and repentance. We see in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus is calling children to himself, which again, 
Jewish leaders and even his disciples did not like. But Jesus is calling children to himself, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is showing that, that the access to the kingdom of God comes through humility. So this world values greatness, shows of power, shows of wealth. But the kingdom of God is about humility. Whoever wants to be great, Jesus says, must become a servant. So Jesus is turning the values of this world upside down in the kingdom of God. But Jesus embodied these values. Jesus was and is a humble king. You see it throughout his ministry, but especially in his crucifixion. And Jesus, he is still a king. Even though he is very humble in his life and ministry, he is still king. In John 18, we see a fascinating discussion between him and Pontius Pilate when Jesus was on trial. It says in John 18, verse 33, that Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? So he'd heard that Jesus was some sort of king. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So we see here in this conversation, Jesus directly acknowledges being a king and that he has a kingdom. But his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of the earthly nature. So he's, again, turning the idea of kingdom upside down as this world typically looks at it. He says, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would be fighting with swords. But my kingdom is not of this world. So that's chapter 4, kind of the hinge point of our understanding of God's kingdom. It all centers on Jesus. Now, chapter 5 of the master narrative is the part that we live in now. It's about the church, which is to be a kingdom community, living out the values of the kingdom and being active to help, help extend God's kingdom further. After Jesus' resurrection, it says in Acts 1, verse 3, that he spent 40 days before he ascended to heaven, 40 days speaking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. He's training them in this kingdom mentality, but they still could not get it. Preconceived ideas are so powerful. They still thought that God's going to set up an earthly kingdom through Israel. In Acts 1.6, it says that the disciples, when they came together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still looking for an earthly kingdom. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it shows that it's not going to be about this political kingdom that's going to come to earth. Instead, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's going to extend his kingdom. They are going to be his witnesses. But remember, they still, at that point, did not understand the nature of the kingdom. But when the Holy Spirit came into their lives, then they had a transformation to understand the, the, the work of the kingdom. Then they became witnesses to Jesus, to his resurrection, which is the hope that God's kingdom is based on. They became his witnesses. It shows that power in the kingdom of God is based on the message of the gospel and on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so his, the church began to grow and to expand. And we see in the New Testament that now God's people are Christians and God's place is the church. 
that his reign starts here within the church, within the Christians who are following Jesus. But it's not to end there. It's to expand. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, expanding the, the rule of God as more and more people submit to him. But, but again, I want to point to the centrality of the kingdom in our ministry. At the end of Acts, in the very last verse, you have Paul who's in prison for his faith in his ministry. Acts 28, 31, the very last verse in the book of Acts, says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You see, Paul, just like Jesus at the beginning of Acts, at the end, Paul is teaching and proclaiming about the kingdom of God. It's central to his ministry and must be central to our understanding of ministry as well. So the church, the way that we live our lives, is to be a kingdom community embodying the values of God's kingdom and extending God's kingdom through the way that we live our lives and the way that we represent Jesus to others. So that's the chapter we are living in now, the master narrative, that we have a part in God's story. But there is one more chapter that we are anticipating, and that's chapter 6, the final chapter of the master narrative. It's the return of Jesus and the consummation of God's kingdom. Now, there is a sense in which God's kingdom is already here now, but there's also a sense in which God's kingdom is not yet fully here. It'll come in the future when Jesus returns, and then it'll be set up in power in a very visible way. We see, for instance, in Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Earthly kingdoms will be overthrown. They will be no more. And what will endure will be God's kingdom set up here on earth. And we see there that the, the people of God, God's people in eternity, will be those who have followed Jesus, those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, those who have placed their faith in him. And God's place for eternity will be the new heavens and the new earth. And we look forward to that with confidence and with hope because it will be a place of more no, no more crying and tears and pain, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more rebellion, no more brokenness. All the struggles we face in this life will be no more in eternity. We look forward to that day, and that gives us hope. And that is the tremendous conclusion to the master narrative that we look forward to. But this narrative can give us um, hope in this life, but also gives us a framework to understand what's happening and how to live now. So that's been a, just a whirlwind tour. I, I realized this week as I was working on this, this is like 20 or 25 minutes with this whirlwind tour of the kingdom of God through Scripture. We could spend years and years going through this. It's that rich from beginning to end in Scripture, and it makes sense of our world as well. So let me just share in closing four implications of this master narrative. One implication is that the ultimate good news is the kingdom of God. It's the gospel is the kingdom. And we think about good news. I mean, think about what's happening in our world right now. We need some good news, don't we? But we have to recognize that regardless of what happens with the presidential election in November, and regardless of what happens with the filling of the Supreme Court seat, regardless of what happens with legislation, regardless of what happens in our broader culture, regardless of what happens even in our specific church here, regardless of what happens in our own lives, the ups and the downs, regardless of whether it's good, regardless of whether it's bad, the kingdom of God endures, and we can cling to the kingdom of God as a source of hope, regardless of what else is happening in our world. Because the kingdom of God is the master narrative that we can live into and give us hope. It's the ultimate good news that we can cling to through all the ups and downs of life in our broken world. So that's one implication. 
A second implication is that the trials of our life are a result directly and or indirectly of rebellion against the king. Now, I am not saying that if you face a hardship in your life that God is causing it because you did something wrong. That is not a biblical concept. What I am saying, though, is that when we see things in this world that are broken, that are messed up, that are hard, is a result directly or indirectly of sin at some point. Even going all the way back to Adam and Eve when they first sinned and this world experienced brokenness that continues to to, uh, exist on into our lives now. It's all directly or indirectly because of rebellion against the king that people in this world are no longer operating the way the king designed. That gives us an explanation and understanding of why our world is broken, but it also gives us a source of hope. The kingdom of God points to the fact that there, there is a confident remedy for the brokenness of our world, and that comes through King Jesus. And that can give us endurance and understanding here and now. Now, a third implication is that we should beware of the allure and idolatry of power and of politics to expand God's kingdom. I'm not saying that politics and power are bad. We're going to be talking about politics and power in weeks to come. But we need to be beware of the allure that especially leads to idolatry of power and politics, thinking that power and politics are what's going to usher in God's kingdom. Because remember, God's kingdom is not of this world. And God's kingdom is not established by the power of the sword or by any other power. Remember, God's kingdom turns the idea of power and greatness upside down. So we need to be very careful. I mean, we have power. We have influence. We need to be very careful about how we wield that power and that influence. And we need to be careful not to turn power and politics into a source of idolatry, thinking that is what's going to usher in the kingdom. Because it's not. The power in God's kingdom comes through the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll get more into that, like I said, in weeks to come. Now, a final implication is that the kingdom is a treasure to be pursued. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's the treasure that comes from knowing Jesus and that joy and the life that he gives and the hope that he gives and the confidence that he gives. It's a treasure that Jesus says it's like a man who finds a treasure buried in a field and in his joy he goes and sells everything else he has, all the other things he'd ever treasured in his life. He goes and sells those with joy because he's found another treasure that trumps all the lesser treasures in life. And so we must understand the kingdom is a treasure to be pursued and a treasure to be cherished above all else. So this is the snapshot of the kingdom of God. We're going to be talking about it more in weeks to come, but I think in closing today, we look at our lives and so many people are just wandering through life, just feeling frustrated, feeling confused, just feeling the chaos of this world pressing in upon them. But let's remember that our hope and our confidence is in the kingdom of God which provides for us the master narrative. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you give us a source of hope and confidence in this world. We look around us, and there is such chaos and such confusion. And we admit, at least I admit, and I believe many others hear my voice would say the same thing, that it's confusing and it's hard to know exactly what to do and what to think. Lord, I pray that you will give us increasing understanding and wisdom of how to navigate the complexities of our world. 
And Lord, help us to to cling to you, to pursue you and pursue your kingdom as our treasure. And that we will live with a confidence that's contagious in other people's lives too. That they too will want to get to know Jesus the King and how to live into his kingdom. That can give them a confidence just like we can have confidence. Lord, we pray that you will guide what's taking place in our world, in our nation, in our own lives. And that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.